Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton, who, coincidentally enough, is a guest on today's show. And, just in the interest of full disclosure, was booked as a guest long before he became an official sponsor of the show. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They've also been guests. It's just all nepotism here on the Jazz Session. They've been on twice, if you can believe that. They are at respectsextet.com, and there you will also find links to purchase their music online and links to their concert itinerary, and I hope you'll support them. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who has never been a guest on the show. He's He and I still are fine in terms of conflict of interest. He's online at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. This show is member-supported, and there's a special little deal going on right now. The next two people who become members of the show at either the middle monthly or yearly level or the top monthly or yearly level will receive a copy of Seasons, the new combined DVD and CD from guitarist Anthony Wilson. It's a pretty amazing concert uh, for guitar players playing gorgeous music that Anthony wrote for four custom-made guitars that are made to be played together. And you can hear Anthony talk about that on his interview on this show, and you can hear and see it for yourself if you become a member at either the middle or top uh, membership levels. Either monthly or yearly is fine. The next two people to do that will get a copy of Anthony's Seasons CD. So hurry up and do that and help support this show and keep it going for years to come. As I mentioned, my guest today is the trumpeter Nicholas Payton. He's got a new recording out. We'll hear some music from that, and then we'll hear my conversation with Nicholas, recorded when he was in town recently here in New York to play a set of shows at Birdland. is the trumpeter Nicholas Payton. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jason. Uh, I want to get to the to the music in a minute, but I want to start by maybe talking about the thing that that keeps you in the forefront of my mind on most days, which is that you have chosen, really unlike 
almost anybody else that I can think of in the jazz world to be a, a remarkably outspoken person in the world of, of social media, and I think particularly on Twitter, which is where I interact with you and, and see your thoughts. And you do it in a really fearless and honest and often pretty self-revealing way. And I just wanted to ask why, why you chose to do that. I feel like why not? Um you know, for years, there are things that I discussed in interviews uh, with various, you know, magazines and publications that they didn't print, you know. And I felt like there was an idea to sort of shape what the perception was supposed to be about my particular feelings on a myriad of subjects. And I feel like with social social media, there's no buffer. There's no middleman. I'm able to directly connect with the people, with fans and other musicians in a real uh, immediate way. Um, and to me, it, it, you know, if you're going to, if I'm going to tweet, if I'm going to do it, I mean, first of all, I think all of it's silly. You know, like I, I you know, I think people f- place far too much importance on it. Um and it's it's become a supplement for human interaction, and I I, I think it's on one level it's pretty sad, but in another um, way, if I'm if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it uh, in a way that I can inject as much feeling into an intrinsically soulless medium, you know, and if I can't. Uh, stand out in some way and be different then there's no sense in me doing it at all at all you know well you mentioned that there were things that you've said before that magazines didn't print and but it, it was also the case in the era before ours and the one before that that a lot of times people's personas and certainly it's still true in the rock and pop world that people's personas were heavily managed so there was always someone kind of making sure they were as palatable as possible to the people around them right. and you i mean you talk about race and gender and class and what makes jazz jazz and what doesn't and in a way that's like the opposite the antithesis of kind of managing a persona it's it seems like it's just actually you not some stage managed created nicholas payton figure um it is and it isn't you know i mean it's you you can't really get the measure of a man through social media sure that's the thing so there's no way for me to totally represent the the complexities of a thought or an idea or a feeling in 140 characters. There's just no way to do it. So I try to create it in a way that, if nothing else, at least it can cause someone to think and make someone feel something. Um, I am pretty honest about my feelings, but the thing is, is which, which is hard to decipher for a lot of people, is when I'm joking and when I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> like some some stuff is just a joke. You know, and, and 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 a lot of people just don't get that, and I, you know, I I just think that you, you run into a big issue when you try to measure up a person through a blog post or any you know a Facebook post. Like you can't do that. Like people need to just get out of that idea of thinking that you can know someone really through that. It's a great way to connect with people, but ultimately the real connection has to come offline and in the real world. Unless if it doesn't do that, then it's not really real to me. That's a virtual reality, <laughs> and then there's reality. Right, and there's a big difference. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I've always looked at you 
despite being as kind of rooted in the tradition as you are, I've always looked at you as a pretty forward-thinking person. I mean, you and I are 16 days apart in age, mm-hmm. and so we came up, you know, exactly at the same era. And I remember yours was the first jazz show I ever went to where I during the Sonic Trance era, where I walked out and somebody handed me a CD of the show I had just been at, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh wow, this is like somebody in the jazz world recognizing that it's at that time the 20th century, and we can do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you've always thought about. You know, not just how can I stay rooted in where I came from, but how can I push ahead and how can I take in what's around me to actually make what I'm doing authentic and relevant. Yeah, you know, this this jazz idea is, is one to me that I find to be very suffocating because, you know, to me, anytime you section yourself off, and particularly a, a word like jazz is very sensitive and has a lot of connotations, not all of which are necessarily positive. Um, to some degree, people expect less, and it's supposed to be okay. If it's a jazz show, oh, well, if there are only three people here, that's okay. If it's a jazz show, it's okay if you have a closet for a dressing room or, you know, the accommodations are not top quality. Like, you know, I want more. I don't want less of something. And music aside, I just feel like we have to get out of this idea that somehow, you know, that it's okay for us to, to not have our music be on par and, and respected as other musics and to have to the the type of viability that popular music has because that's what it essentially is it's pop music and 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 you know Louis Armstrong was the world's first rock star for what it's worth and some somewhere along the way the music separated itself from this idea and and it became like this niche thing and uh this sort of it had this underground kind of cult following which eventually developed into it sort of being this very elitist type of sensibility which which separates itself from everything and my feeling is that like particularly musics of the black aesthetic like they they all are essentially the same and it, it is my idea to try to keep the qualities of what made this music f- you know fiercely popular in the early part of the century like to keep those fundamentals to the forefront a very sensual sexy music that's exciting that makes you want to dance these are not things that people have come to associate jazz with anymore which is what i'm fighting against you know Just to 
in in chicken and egg terms, is was it some change in the way the the artists perceived what they were doing that led to this drop off in kind of commercial viability and popularity, or was it a flip that as people moved to other kinds of music, jazz moved in on itself, or or some combination? I think I think it's a confluence of elements. Um, on its most basic level, I think once the music stopped being dance music, like performed in venues where people can move around and stand up and dance, that changed the idea of what it was, or when the, the perhaps when the level of virtuosity um, uh, reached, you know, an apex of say people like Art Tatum and and Charlie Parker, maybe people were just so mesmerized with that level of like, you know, immediate like spontaneous creation that they wanted to listen more than dance I, I think it's a lot of things that go into it but ultimately to me I think it's the idea somehow that um, when it becomes a thing oh this is jazz so what this is what it is we it becomes haunted by itself recordings have a lot to do with that once once music becomes recorded and you have an idea of what something is you know most artists are are, are, are haunted by the museums of their own careers because when you hear this Lester Young record and you're, you're moved by it and then you go to see him and he plays uh, T for two and it's nothing like the record then maybe there's some sense of bewilderment there there's some expectation and I think the, 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 the moment you have some expectation of what something is supposed to be not only from the industry and the fans but by the artists themselves it, you make it more difficult it, you have to try harder to not be bound by what that idea is even the ideas we have of ourselves you know it's, it's a hard thing to constantly challenge yourself and to constantly because you you're never your comfort is in being uncomfortable because you're always striking out to to do something new and there's a lot of uh it's a fearful space to be in it's not a. It's not something that intuitively we necessarily want to do. It's something that you have to kind of fight your own instincts and to be able to trust that everything is okay. As improvisers, that is essentially what we're supposed to be able to do. But somehow that got lost along the way. Yeah, I, I remember as a teenager, I was really into prog rock, and like one of the main appeals of going to a show like that is that it is performed. Exactly, it's incredibly intricate, and it's exactly like the record, and that's like one of the appeals as a fan. You know, you see everybody in front doing all the drum fills, or you know, playing air guitar, or air keyboard, or whatever, which is definitely, as you say, not something you can do in the world of improvised music. It's just not, it's not what that is about, and it puts you in a different place as a fan because you're not sure what you're going to get mm-hmm. when you walk in. I, I think there's a merit in repeating things. You know, there are some things that. Uh, we use as a thematic basis uh, or a springboard for the other new ideas. But as long as they sort of are that, that they don't become crutches of reliability, so at some point we don't use that, uh, that becomes something that we we use to hold on to um, because we're afraid to step out. Like, the spirit of excitement is what attracted me to this music and how daring musicians were and being bold and being able to be different from everybody else. That's why people revered so-called jazz musicians. And they, that's why like other people use that, you know, in, in, in marketing. Um, how is it that when um, a P. Diddy or Christina Aguilera or, or other people use jazz, it's, it's like really cool. But for 
a so-called jazz musician, it's not really cool to look and to talk and to act like a jazz musician. It doesn't work in the jazz musician's favor. And that's kind of odd to me. I, I just think the music has, 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 has ceased being as sexy as it, as, as it should be. And it, it's not, it's become so insular. It's, it's about the, the impressing, uh, impressing other musicians. You know, the virtuosic aspect of it has eclipsed the, um, the, the visceral experience. And, and once you do that, then it, it becomes something else and it, it, cease, it ceases to be art anymore and something that, that can touch and be important to people and give them a personal experience. It becomes like some kind of um, project, you know, and I don't think music should be like music should, should reach people and it should be a communal experience and it should be enjoyable. It's okay for music to sound beautiful and to sound like something you can grasp and, and understand and hold on to. I think that a lot of musicians play for critical approval. The less that it sounds like something that's rooted in the tradition, the more uh, uh, perhaps you're picked to be uh, cited as one of the more important progenitors of the art. And that's, that's kind of like backwards, you know. You came along and you turned my world right upside down. sensual element is a huge factor in Bitches, the new record which is officially released in November but is available now on, on Amazon at least which is where I got mine as an MP3 download and is it on iTunes mm-hmm. yet? Okay. Uh, so and it is certainly rooted in a tradition but it's not necessarily the jazz tradition that first leaps out at my ear. I mean it really, it kind of harkens back to this very like bluesy R&B kind of danceable sexy sensual feeling in addition to being beautiful uh, mm-hmm. maybe you can talk about that a little yeah I, I don't see as much of a distinction as some people do like why is it not you know why is it not the same as whatever some someone's idea of jazz is um take a tune like Freesia um I any of the tunes really I can play that in any type of style with any type of groove that I want is still the same composer. 
It's the same person that wrote the music on Into the Blue, um, you know. In fact, many of these tunes were slated to be um, on Into the Blue, you know, which is how I, I started the recording process. They were essentially demos for the Into the Blue session, half of the material. Um, so, yeah, a tune like Frieza, it has all the harmonic complexities of a tune that I would write in a so-called jazz setting. Um, the form is there. Um, there's just a static, uh, some somewhat static anyway, uh, danceable groove, and automatically that's uh, the assumption is that it's more popish or less jazzy, less jazzy. I'm just trying to break away. That's why I don't like those kind of titles because it doesn't serve the music or the artist because it limits. Uh, expectations and, and, it, and it limits creativity like for me for something to swing is a certain feel to it and something can swing in any type of groove and if you want to get real specific if you listen to the hi-hat on that track freezer it's a swing ride pattern no different than Papa Joe Jones would do in the 30s it's the same idea chopping wood on two and four it's the same thing same thing as the Basie band does does where you're from uh, kind of allow you or does it does it inform the fact that you're so comfortable not worrying about genre classifications and I guess since I have no reference for what it would be like to not be where I'm from is <laughs> is hard to say but yeah I mean being from New Orleans like I grew up playing well before I even started playing in in, in bands you know dance uh, Brass bands with people second line. I mean, I, I was a participant in that, and I, an observer of of that idea of how music music makes the body move. And if you look at the current generation of uh, jazz musicians, and maybe even up up to like age forty, and maybe a little before, you're looking at generation uh, a generation or two, or almost three, of musicians who have no practical experience ever playing for anyone who's ever danced. They've never done it. That affects how you think about music. You, you're going to look at music and groove a lot differently, and it's going to be a lot, perhaps, less important to you than someone who's actually had to play for something that inspired someone to move. You know, and that's the idea I come from. And um, I think the music uh, known as jazz has gotten too far away from that idea. And, and now it's about something else. And I, I feel it, it's a large reason why there's not the same type of listener or the same type of passion or the audience surrounding the music. Because a lot of it just doesn't uh, move me. It doesn't sound good. You know, and I'm a musician. So, it, you know, for me to sit through a set of something that just seems too cerebral perhaps like I, I can't imagine how someone who doesn't who can't even appreciate it on a technical level like what what they must feel um lacking from it the whole that that whole gritty thing that actually holds all the stuff together because all that level of technical uh understanding of theory or whatever those are just tools it means nothing if there's not the emotional depth behind all of that stuff uh to give it some weight and to me, that's like one of the things that's missing. Uh, I feel like in many ways, the current musician is, is, reads music better, 
they probably have a great understanding of harmony and theory, uh, can play in a lot of different types of meters. But I mean, you call a medium tempo slow blues and like, no, you know, no, they can't play it. And my thing is, is like, if that's beneath you, if you feel that's so archaic and old hat, then you should be able to do it. But if you can't do it, then that should suggest to you that perhaps you need to do some homework and maybe these things that you think are, are perhaps old have a certain validity to it that you're overlooking. You know, to, to, I think it's, that kind of playing is uh, underestimated and taken for granted. Yeah, I, uh, before I started inter- interviewing musicians, I was a saxophone player for my career, and I played in mostly salsa and funk bands, which were totally geared toward people dancing. Mm-hmm. And I find now, and I've said this on the show a bunch of times, that I go see jazz you know, most nights of the week here in New York City, the you know, kind of purported capital of that music in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I've, I've, as I've said many times here, when I want to go see something that I know is really going to grab me and actually like hit me in the gut, Nine times out of ten, that's not a jazz show that I'll go to. I'll go see something else. See, to me, that's a shame. You know, it is to me too. <laughs> you know, even if I find it intellectually stimulating, that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, as when I go to like a hands in the air, you know, rock show or hip hop show or salsa show, it's just a totally different thing. Like I leave there feeling like, wow, some piece of me was changed by exactly. this experience. That, that's what music should do. That's what great music should do. And the fact that a lot of people are leaving jazz shows empty is why a lot of the rooms are becoming more and more empty because those other musics give you that. You know, why, you know these things are not mutually exclusive. Like, you, you don't have... It doesn't mean that your music is devoid of that intellectual counterpart because it moves someone or it makes them scream, or it makes them cry, or it makes them want to get up out of their seat and and dance. You know, you can have all of that. You can have both. I mean, Louis Armstrong was was one of the greatest examples of of entertainment and art improvising artistically on a high level. You know, you can have it all. You can do it all. It just takes a a bit of thought to, to, you know, and, and, uh, and a social context. You know, these people played like they live they played to live you know they died for the music like it meant something a lot deeper than this is a gig to me or this is some kind of way to for me to carve out uh you know my personal path or maybe get some sort of notoriety in a field of you know in uh achievement or excellence this music is a lot more than that it's about moving people and bringing people together the communal aspect which you know uh, again i attribute to my upbringing in new orleans because it that is still a big part of 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 what the music is about there
love ain't always easy But baby, it don't necessarily have to be this hard In all fairness, you can't play judge and jury So why you treating me like a lawyer who's been disbarred? Can't you just face facts, relax, let's get involved Or this will never, ever get resolved I just want peaceful, loving, happiness Let's stop these games To what do you ascribe the way that uh, current the current generation of musicians, ours and the one after us, I guess, approaches music as opposed to the way you just described it, that kind of living to play, playing to live? Uh, for one, I, I think they're taught it in schools. You know that that that's primarily how they learn. And I mean, when you're in a uh, enrolled in some type of curriculum, they have to have something to tell you every day. You know, whereas you know you can't make a lesson plan to teach someone how to improvise. But if you're in a situation where you're in a school, you have to figure out, you know, how to make that into something that means something to to somebody on some school board to to illustrate that you actually do have a certain uh, method of teaching but you that's not the way to really learn this music it's it's informal the lessons that i've learned have not only been on the bandstand but they've been just like from hanging out with a cat like clark terry or doc cheatham listen to what they say like in between sets you know stuff like that um and you can't get that in school. And I'm not against school because I think for someone who lives in, you know, Iowa, you know, enrolling in some jazz or music program might be their only um, entree into understanding or getting even a glimpse of, of what this music is about. But eventually that should lead to an interaction with someone who actually does this. And uh, so they... You know, when some musicians come through their town or nearby, they should actually go here and listen to. But even, you know, remote communities have some time, some type of scene somewhere where I look at, uh, you know, like where um, the Kaiser brothers are from. I mean, they they kind of live in a remote part of, you know, any type of metropolis where there's a, a heavy jazz scene. But, I mean, Ryan and Justin are two of the baddest trumpet players out here. It, there's still a way to learn, um, but you have to have um, proper direction and a proper um, outlook from the outset. I, I think even like with a lot of the stuff the younger people listen to, they don't even listen to music that's groove-based. or They listen to each other, and the frame of reference becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. You know, like I think it's really cool, like with guys like Mark Turner and... Kurt Rosenwinkel have done, who are like two of the biggest influences on the New York scene. Um, but those guys studied, you know, I, you know, I played uh, with Mark Turner and Delphi and Marcellus's band uh, in New Orleans uh, for a couple years. And I remember like Mark Turner breaking down Joe Henderson lines and John Coltrane's lines and putting them together and the, the intense study that he did. Um, the younger people listening to him don't get all that. Someone like Chris Potter, who's one of the most virtuosic improvisers out today, the younger people only listen to him, but they don't study. They don't go back to check out like who Chris Potter uh, came out of. They don't realize the importance of the tutelage that 
Chris served in Red Rodney's band, who's connected to the tradition. So there's a lineage here, and that lineage has perhaps been lost because there's a lack of opportunity. Uh, There are not as many opportunities as uh, there perhaps were when I came on the scene to play with older older cats and learn. But also there's not the desire, there's not as much of a desire from younger people to seek those few opportunities out uh, to to learn and serve a tutelage with someone who's 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 a part of that lineage you know i have young people who come to lessons with me and they want to know how to make it or what's the secret to playing outside whatever that is like some really uh add water and learn how to play jazz you know this like easy like throw it in a microwave type of sensibility like no it takes a lot of hard work there is no secret I, if if I could put that in a book, I would be the richest man on earth because that would unlock that would be the million million dollar question. No, it's 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 like hard work. You have to figure it out for yourself. I can't teach you anything. That's the biggest misnomer about uh, jazz education or education. Period. We can't you can't teach anyone anything. At best, you can perhaps give them the tools and and to stimulate their minds to begin for them to start thinking for themselves to figure out what works best for them. Um, Without that, you're going to be lost because then you're going to always be you're going to rely on some other someone else's information and not attune in tune to um, what you feel about something, what you think. I think we live in an era where there's less reliance on our intuitive nature and more on our um, uh, uh, intellectual nature and information that we receive via the media or social social networking or cnn like it's just a bunch of information and people are not being still enough to figure out how something feels within their bodies and within their spirit and but i I see a shift happening um right now and i think people are getting pretty uh fed up with the current system and the way of doing things as evidenced by all this occupy stuff that's going on all across the country like people are seeing that you know this this air of 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 bullshit that has become very commonplace they're getting tired of it and people want something that's real reality tv is not real the interactions that we have on social media though they can parlay themselves into something that may be genuine they in in, in and of themselves are, are, are pretty empty and i think there's a movement beginning where people are getting tired of it and they want something that's real they're tired of being lied to they're tired of you know the fakery that that we're surrounded with and they're beginning to question and challenge and i, I feel that's a great place to be in right now i'm definitely going to start referring to this time as the era of bullshit <laughs> from, from now on I'm, I'm definitely stealing that uh, i want to come back to the record but just before i do I, do you think it's actually the case that these problems that you're identifying are new problems of this time or are we just sadly at 38 the new like grumpy old men i mean is it is this conversation always been happening or are we are these things actually happening now in a way they didn't before we've worked hard to get here (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing like it didn't happen easy like you know it it takes a lot of conditioning to fool yourself into believing a farce it's not so easily done um, I think we're of the age where we've watched it happen. We came in on the tail end of 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 something that's great, and we've watched the descent into bullshit. You know, we're we're old enough to have experienced what it was like to go outside and play genuine interaction, as opposed to like kids playing. Well, I think it's great if you're gonna you know 
play uh, Grand Theft Auto with. I, I'm in Iowa and I'm going to play with someone in China. That's cool, but th there's no real genuine interaction there. Kids don't play basketball anymore, really. Like they they play virtual basketball. You know, you ask a kid like, "What do you want? A real guitar or rock band and guitar hero?" They're going to pick guitar hero. We had real tactile experiences. We had records. We had Walkmans with cassette players with moving parts in them. <laughs> <laughs> now they're just files. It's empty, you know? And we, we saw that transition. We had big-ass Walkmans, you know? Now these kids, they have a little iPod, and they have their whole music library. And one of the things, how convenient. I mean, that's cute and convenient. But I don't know. I just feel like it meant more when I had those five cassette tapes that I went on on the road that I really listened to <laughs> as opposed to, like, an iPod full of thousands of songs that I didn't really listen to. Yeah, those are all the albums I know all the lyrics of and every note and all the arrangements because I had exactly. Yeah, had it meant something. <laughs> you saved to get that record. You went yep. in that record store. There was an experience. There was someone, you know, the record store guy that you knew or a woman that you knew that turned you on to music. They were in the know. Now you go buy something. You go to Best Buy and you ask someone a question about any device and it's like they don't really know they can't really answer your questions like the, the, the those days we've witnessed that transition but i think we've grown tired of it you know and it's also now those people in i don't it's funny you say grumpy old men it's also those grumpy old people who are now marching on the streets of of of, uh, of cities across uh, across the country who are who are who have grown sick of it because they've seen the transition and now they're just awakening to the fact of yeah th perhaps we thought we we were progressing but no nah, not really we haven't really progressed at all in fact we've regressed and we need to recapture some of these things because in 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 the pursuit of something new and uh, it's like people who perhaps when they get an iPod or CD who threw all threw all their vinyl away let's get, oh we have something new and better it sounds you know there's no scratch it won't get scratched up we can carry it but it, you know it wasn't necessarily better it was just different and now you see like record stores cropping up all over the place people want that vinyl now they want that analog sound they want to hear that fried chicken popping and, and you know along with the record like we 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 lost a certain tangible aspect of 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 living in the pursuit of something that was better and i think it is just a tool it allows us access to things in the immediacy of it it was very attractive but in the long run we're still human beings we still have movable parts we still generate heat like we are like we're like a cassette tape machine more so than you know a file and uh, I think we're just trying to recapture that that aesthetic because we miss it
You referred earlier to the the new record as having static grooves, which but I think you were just using as a descriptive word. They're, mm-hmm. they're anything but just static, but they are uh, you know kind of locked in in a way that we don't something repetitive. Often associate. That, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, d- does does playing over that does it change the nature of the way you improvise, either the way you interact rhythmically with the band or the kind of story you might tell because of what's going on under you that way? Um. Not me particularly, but but how I think about things is a is a little different. Like I'm not a linear type thinker, but but that's kind of against the trend because jazz has become very linear, and that's something that started heavily uh, with the bebop era. Everything became a, a linear idea, and for things can, to have can you define that term? What what years? Uh, like if you follow the line of Charlie Parker. You know, you follow the, the drum patterns of, of uh, say, a Max Roach, where it doesn't. There's nothing repetitive to, to kind of lock onto, as opposed to the very two and four backbeatish type style that New Orleans drummers play, with you know the snare on two and the bass drum on one with a heavy four, or even the, the, a permutation of that of uh, the Kansas City style of swing, where you you have the ride pattern on the cymbal. But you know you you you're chopping wood on on two and four on on, on the uh, rim of the snare, and you know a four on the floor on the bass drum. Um, that's kind of a hallmark of, of dance music. When you hear that thing, all the stuff on top of it may change, but you have that underpinning of of of, of groove. You can float on top of that. To me, when it's feeling good and you have that that groove behind you. I feel limitless. I feel whatever. It, it, I, can, I feel like I can go wherever. When it's not really grooving, and and not to say that someone can't play more broken up in the style of Philly Joe Jones, but the problem the, the problem is is like we've we've had a permutation of a permutation of an idea of a permutation, and it's become more and more watered down. So now the frame of reference has become shorter. So now when you hear somebody, it's like it, it's more of a. a an idea a linear idea based on someone else's idea based on someone else's idea and they don't have the roots of say uh playing a dance gig like our and our blakey had or an elvin jones had or even like a hurl and riley had um that's going to mean something different when when Herlin plays in a more linear style where the bass drum and the snare patterns are broken up because he's still hearing that boom chick in the back the younger cat is not hearing that boom chick, you know. And even a lot of the popular musics don't favor a groove, regardless of whatever they are. All music has become very homogenized. All popular musics, there's no real distinction between, you know, uh, Katy Perry tune or an Usher tune. There's no like, you know, oh, this is soul, this is R&B, this is rock, this is this is that like. It's homogenized and not in a sense of bringing together, not in a communal aspect, but in a sense that it's just all uh, become all very the same and 
there's a lack of distinction it's almost like when you travel other places and you sort of feel like you're in, you're in the same strip of Times Square oh there's a McDonald's there's a CVS there's a whatever like you could be anywhere in the world and see those same things here's a Chase ATM here's a Citibank and you walk block by block and it's like you're walking on the same block that's what like listening to a lot of pop music is like now there's no differentiation so here's a contradiction like things are essentially the same but they're changing as well um so i think as as we as we become perhaps more misguided in our personal social personal perspective we try to latch on to things that feel more comfortable and the same so we like marathons of the same reality shows that we've seen a million times but we just keep watching them that's because we're not very rooted personally so we look to external things to root us and to give us some sense of familiarity. Whereas before, when we were more rooted internally, hearing something different or, or having this kind of different experience to take us out of that uh, or to, to, to transcend that, they were more important. So now I think we're on the cusp of a shift where we want to become more rooted and conscious and have art inspire us and lift us up as opposed to having the art be something that gives us something to, to sort of hold on to. Because I, I just don't think that's the real function of art, to be like handlebars or something that you hold on to. It's supposed to be that that quality that you don't really know how the bike is working, you don't really know how the moment, momentum is, but it doesn't preclude you from being able to ride that bike and to, to move forward and to be able to propel. So when you said before, in answer to the question about how playing over these repeated rhythms changes the way you play, and you said you were a nonlinear player, that meant, did you mean that you're also kind of hearing the boom chick? And so when you're playing... I don't know if I'm nonlinear, like I, I employ linear elements, but to me, I do it in a way that it's circular. You know, I think of life more like uh, concentric circles than I do a line that leads from point A to point B. Like I'm more of the feeling like we grow like rings on a tree. There's that central core that we always have access to. Regardless of year by year, those rings expand. And the linear part to me is is that we can draw a line from one extreme uh, uh, one, uh, through the diameter of that circle. And we have access to all those rings at any given time. And they expand continually outward and continually inward. As deep as you want to get into yourself, you allow that, that you have that latitude. And as far out you want to expand, that is. But it's not this kind of point A, point B, get from here to there type of thing. Like, I don't think of life as that. And I think uh, so-called jazz has become too linear like that. I think a lot of people get the wrong idea from Charlie Parker because they study the harmony, they study the line. What they don't get is is that Bird's central uh, the things that, that, that makes Bird most important is his rhythmic uh, uh, inflections. Because we look at just the notes there's not a significant difference between you know what Lester Young was doing and Art Tatum was doing to Charlie Parker is where he placed the rhythmic emphasis that was like uh, mind-boggling that just you know and it's always been pretty much rhythm if we're going to talk about so-called jazz it's always been rhythm that has been the signal for change harmony is just like colors you know that you throw around and use but the real underpinning of it is is, is rhythm 
And then that goes back to the drums in Congo Square in New Orleans, which is where all this started. So playing from that uh, concentric point of view, does mm-hmm. that mean that at any time you have access to the full range of exactly. things that have influenced you? Exactly. Um, I feel a sense, a deep sense of being rooted to the tradition. I feel like I can call upon, not to sound like, not in a spooky way, but the ancestors at, at any point I can channel that, that idea, that feeling. Even people that I didn't know, and certainly people that I've known who have passed on. You know, they're not dead. They, 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 they weren't just here and now they're gone and then we just keep moving. No, it's just changed form. You know, energy is neither created or destroyed. It, it just changes form because we can't see it anymore doesn't mean it's not here. Uh, so for me, the idea is to, to play things. I don't think about it because I think there's something, there's a difference between something being static and repetitive you know so perhaps a better word than what i said before was that the the grooves are perhaps repetitive when you repeat something it kind of gives it uh it makes it valid like if you make a mistake whatever that is (laughs) you you play it again you play it again (laughs) and then it's not so much a mistake anymore but even a mistake i'm I'm all about like if if you're not reaching you're making mistakes all the time what is that Oftentimes, to me, a mistake is not a mistake. It's really the truth trying to reveal itself despite yourself. So that's how we learn. That's how new styles are discovered. Um, breakthroughs in, in science and math and, and chemistry have been discovered because somebody was trying to find something else and put the wrong thing in the wrong tube. And, oh, this is, you know the sense of discovery but without that if you always have an idea of, of wanting to know exactly where you're going and and only limited by the information that you have you'll never discover anything new it's only in making the mistakes and being willing to f- completely fall on your face that you'll make real breakthroughs in life i believe A few more things. You invited some pretty incredible people to be on the new record with you. Can you uh, mention who some of them are? Certainly. Um, Esperanza Spalding, uh, Cassandra Wilson, China Black, 
and Dombey Saunders Sermons. I believe that's everybody. Yeah. And was there is there some through line that connects those players in your mind that made them all appropriate for this project? Um, well, one thing I felt it uh, it added some balance because you know I played everything on the record, all the instruments, and I'm singing on every tune. So I wanted some element of something else besides myself on the record. And because I, I wanted it to be only me instrumentally, I felt the best way to go would, would be to add um, vocal, guest vocalists. And I, I was very selective in terms of who I wanted to pick for which, which songs. Because the record is kind of like a play. Uh, it's a story told in, in two acts. And... Um, the, the different voices represent different characters on different pieces. Um, Esperanza sort of represents um, a whimsical, innocent sort of spirit. Uh, on the tomb Frisia, the bliss of love, this kind of thing. Um, the pathos uh, that Ndambi was able to conjure on Togetherness Foreverness, which is about like is the the... the uh, the the pangs of love, so to speak. She just really captured that thing. Or Saunders' sermons, kind of being like um, a voice of conscious, uh, a consciousness to me, like sort of an angel on my shoulder looking out. Um, to uh, Cassandra, having this very um, almost, you know, when I was listening to it, and I told her, I was I was like I. You're so much more of a seasoned vocalist than I am, and I hope you don't take insult to this. But there are times where we're singing where I feel like I can't really distinguish when I end my line and when you begin it. So it's like she's like the soulmate of that piece, the other side of love that one at once complements but uh, also completes, but is also distinct at the same time. That that whole dichotomy. So you know, every everybody and and and. and China Black's very um, demonstrative, female, tender, yet very strong spirit. So I was very, very uh, particular about who I wanted to sing what and on what tune I wanted to have a guest and to represent a different energy. You use such kind of beautiful and emotive and tender words to describe the songs and describe the singers and the music and then and I'm forced to ask because the album is called Bitches mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like <laughs> naming a record Fuck You or something like that so so I, I have to ask why um, it kind of came about as an afterthought uh, from a very close friend it was like joking around it was like yeah you should call the album Bitches and of course my crazy mind was like damn that's, that's a pretty good idea actually <laughs> To me, it kind of sums it up because, you know, life is riddled with contradictions. You know, things that we think are, you know, things that are parallel at one, one point intersect in another. You know, day and night, yin and yang. Um, we're constantly negotiating, you know, uh, extremes, you know, and, and trying to f- find, exist within, with, within those extremes and those parameters. Uh, it's sort of like when people are like, well... You say fuck and shit and pussy and this, that, and the other, and then, but you know, you have a record called Bitches, but then you have a big band with, with, uh, you know, a lot of females. Or, um, you know, you say all this stuff about racism and white 
white people and black people and jazz and what have you, and you have a lot of white people in your band. You know, it's not, you know, it's very easy to look at some, something on the outside of what you think something is and to only take it at that. It requires a lot of effort to kind of dig deeper, and I, I kind of feel like I have, um, if I may say so, a gift of making people become aware of that kind of thing. And some people really appreciate it. Some people reject it, and I make a lot of people quite uncomfortable. But my whole thing is, why are you, very, why are you that uncomfortable about what I'm saying? And it's not so much about what I'm saying all the time as I'm challenging the, the status quo and hopefully inspiring people to think differently and t to say that, you know, um, just because you can't pin someone down to say, like, uh, exactly because they look like this, or because they dress like this, or because they say this kind of thing, that means that they must be this kind of way. And it's the real big problem in the world right now. It's why we have wars, because we can't accept that someone has a different belief system and, and, and we can't coexist with people. And until we get over this idea that we can't have things that seem extremely different coexist in the same room, we won't, we won't advance as a people. And that, to me, is the thing that I feel like we need to overcome. If we're ever going to get out of this age of bullshit, and, 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 and move on to the age of enlightenment, we're going to have to dispel all our ideas and notions about what we've thought things to be because we have been wrong about a lot of things. We have been wrong about race. We have been wrong about sexuality. We have been wrong about religion. We have been wrong about so many things. And at a certain point, we're going to have to wake up and put all these things on the table and reevaluate our whole system of belief is based on falsehoods and have been created from a a space of fear and the only way we're going to break through that is by challenging those things and addressing them head on and that's what I've tried, tried to kind of be a mirror for is that hey look at this this shit is not right it's fucked up and we need to change it and finally uh, as we're recording this yesterday was the birthday of Art Blakey and he's come up a couple times uh, in this interview I wonder if there's anything you'd like to say about your experience with him or why it's important oh, that people still know about him you know I was blessed to play with him one time in New Orleans kind of on a fluke. It was a record date for Ellis Marcellus. It was called A Night at Snug Harbor. It was recorded live at Jazz Fest 1989. And uh, I was to play this tune to sit in with them uh, with, with Donald Harrison, who was a big idol for me at that time, being one of the cats who came from New Orleans and went to, went to New York and really made it big. Um, and just by chance, the tune I played on was a tune that our Blakey sat in on, which was not supposed to happen. And I was, I mean, I was just like, our Blakey was like the guy who I wanted to go to New York and play. Like I was in school to, to, to learn, to, to spend my time to learn to go to New York and play with our Blakey. And here I was playing with our Blakey. It, I, I, I still remember that moment like it happened yesterday. It was just completely transcendent. So after we played the tune, now, uh, were you already on stage when he walked on? Or yeah, I believe yeah. so. Like they called him up. I'm like, wow, this is like, <laughs> this is freaky. Like, okay, wow. Like, can you ever have everything in your life? Like, this is one of those moments where everything, you know, the circle is complete. So we did the song. I, I can't even remember playing. It just felt like I was out of my body. And um, I'm so glad it was recorded because when I listened to it. First of all, I just couldn't hear anything because I had never played with a drummer who played with that, that sense of force and drive that never let up. It was just const this constant push. 
it was interesting because years later when I played with Elvin, it was it's just as intense, but it's more like waves. You know, with Elvin, it went went up and down. With Blakey, there was just this straight, unrelenting drive that just pushed you to places you never thought you can go. Elvin did it, but he did it differently. Um, and after we did the tune, he was sitting in the audience, and I went and went and uh, introduced myself. And uh, I was just real serious at that time and nervous. And the first thing he said is, "Smile, you're from New Orleans." And uh, he started talking to me. He was like, "Nicholas, I want you to come to New York." It's time for you to be a messenger. And it's almost like it had this bigger meaning to it. Like, not a jazz messenger or not any type of thing in particular, but a messenger. Like, the way he said it, and those words just still, I still hear it exactly how he said it. Like, it had some bigger importance that even I didn't understand at that time. Um, so, I was going to NOCA at that time, New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts. And... Um, I had uh, sat in once with Clark Terry at the IAJE that was in New Orleans in 1990. And some folks from the new school heard me play. And they were going to work it out so that I finished my last year of high school in New York and went to the new school. Uh, and I wanted to work that out to be able to play with Art Blakey. Unfortunately, he passed. Um, and I was never able to realize that opportunity. But so glad I at least got a chance to hear and, more importantly, play with our Blakey because so many people of my generation have not only not didn't play with them but didn't even hear them I got a chance to like at least touch that for a little while in my life and I'm, I'm just really grateful to have had that experience my guest is uh, trumpeter and multi-instrumentalist Nicholas Payton, uh, who's also an official sponsor of this show, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. I thank you very much. Uh, nice to thank you in person. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great to talk to you. A pleasure. Vanilla just in case. Bitches. In 
That's music from trumpeter Nicholas Payton. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Don't forget the next two people to join at the middle or upper membership levels, either monthly or yearly, will receive a copy of Anthony Wilson's new CD-DVD set, Seasons. So you can go to thejazzsession.com slash join to sign up. And the next two people, as I said, at either the middle or top monthly or yearly level will receive a copy of that DVD and CD. In the meantime, if you would, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.